1: Ego and check, me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date.
0: <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Mardi Gras is a favourite time of the year for many people. It inevitably means catching up with friends from around the globe or nationally as they all descend on Sydney for a week of celebration and pride. One such friend for me is Tobin Saunders, whose alter ego, Vanessa Wagner, I've worked with on a few occasions, which always proved to be enormous fun and an opportunity to watch a phenomenal talent close up. But there is more than Mardi Gras to Tobin and Vanessa. Tobin is a freelance performer, writer, choreographer, dancer, actor, DJ and events coordinator-producer. Combining elements of contemporary dance, expressive movement, popular culture, social comment and satire, Tobin's work could be described as pastiche. Vanessa Wagner is one of Australia's most colourful and entertaining identities. She started as a dedicated housewife and part-time hostess. Her flexibility as a performer and artist has cemented her position as a supreme talent and much-sought personality perfect for any occasion. They are both delightful and great company. So here's my catch up with Tobin Saunders. Well, hi, Tobes. It's nice to see you, albeit via Zoom.
1: Peter, it's gorgeous to to be with you. I mean, I'm up here in sunny little Ballina and the convenience of the worldwide interwidget is brilliant. So it's great we can chat on a Saturday afternoon or whenever it is we're talking.
0: Yes. Uh, I, th- I think we're all masters of Zoom now, uh, brought about by COVID, of course, um, yes. forcing us to to all jump online. But but it has been terrifically convenient for all sorts of reasons uh, in order to catch up with people around the place.
1: The double-edged sword of a pandemic. The
0: pandemic. How are you? You good?
1: Well, look, as you can hear, I sound like a croaky frog. So I just came back from Beechworth in Victoria for the Dragged Out Festival, which was a hoot, but exhausting, and it was freezing down there. It's not like Ballina where it's subtropical most of the year. And so I've picked up a chunky chest cold. So apologies to the listeners who find my voice grating at the best of times. Now it's going to be double grating.
0: <laughs> well, I hope you feel better soon. Uh, That's how what was it? It was fall How was dragged out? It looked like um, a wonderful event where you you got to catch up with all sorts of family, I suppose, fellow performers who you hadn't seen for quite a while.
1: Yeah, well, the, the sort of Sydney crew, if you like, was Cindy Pastel, Porsche Turbo and myself. Um, and then there was lots of drag queens, mainly from Melbourne. Um, I did speak to a disgruntled uh, drag queen who actually looked a little bit like a drag king. It was a brilliant look. And they said that they'd boycotted it because there was no local acts. And so I need to get clarify, clarify that because I think it's important to have local acts. But it was great. It was it's the most beautiful pic- picturesque town um and just everyone came together and everyone seemed very chilled Uh, I think from my observations Victorians are the chillest people in the country right now you reckon well the voice break then they are very chilled I mean it's a bit it's very much been gentrified that town but everyone's pretty easy going um and I guess it helps being fabulous because then if you're lovely people are nice back to you.
0: They are indeed, they are indeed. Give out what you want back. Um, now, now, A lot of your uh, performing career has uh, been supported by music. Uh, what genre of music do you like listening to?
1: Oh gosh, that's I, that question's so difficult. Well, I was um, brought up in a jazz household. So dad played piano from the age of five and he was coming back from the Sydney Piano Stedford at the age of seven or eight, or nine maybe, which he won with his grandmother, Stella and Harry. And Stella was like, what are all those lights? As I was going across the Harbour Bridge on the train, it was the Japanese submarine being attacked. So dad played jazz, needs to read, but there was always a piano in the house. There was always jazz music being played and dad would have very interesting taste in music. So kind of chick career and all sorts of fusion and when jazz kind of started to morph into um, funk and stuff, and then my eldest brother, um, complaining instrument at all, so he was in some really cool bands where they wrote their own music. So big part of my life. To answer your question, currently I'm into heavy mellow. I love R&B, soul, funk. Of course, I love disco, but I'm just as easy to settle into a Brian Eno trance. Do you know what I mean? I'm be- very eclectic. Yes, I suppose
0: it depends on what mood you're in and, and what you need to feed the soul at that time.
1: That's right. It's the whole thing about top, bottom, verse. It's all a mood thing.
0: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, now, what about the phone? Um, apps on the phone. What would you say would be your most used app?
1: I mm-hmm. Just having a look at it right now. I'm a bit of a weather freak, so I'd probably have to say the Bureau of Meteorology.
0: I agree. I, I mean. Uh- It's something I check frequently.
1: Yes. And I did hear some information that there's been bullying and shenanigans, and it's now called the Bureau. Um, But I like that. I also look at Willy Weather, which is a free one with tides. And I like the Moon Phase one. And I think my favourite one at the moment is called Sky Map. And it's free, and you just stick it up and stick it up. You place it, and you get to see whatever planet and stars are around our solar system. And it's really cute. Can you see that i just want to impress you
0: that's very that's very impressive you can see all of this the, the galaxy yeah. there and the various so, formation
1: yeah i'm very um inquisitive but um in the last year or so i sort of reconnected with some of the sexual socials as i like to call them um you mean dating apps well that yeah but allegedly <laughs> um <laughs> So that's been a hell in a handbasket, but a very interesting learning curve. So I've got quite a few there. I, I ditched scruff for some reason because all the lights go out at 9 p.m. as opposed to midnight on Grinder. Um what do you mean all I the love. what do you mean all the lights go out? Well, that little green light that says they're online. They all tuck in and go to sleep. All right. Okay.
0: That's so look, I've new... had a
1: peek at Grinder. You've really got to go into Grinder with a real sense of uh, you need to wear it. Armour, maybe even chainmail. Squirt I like because it's a bit slower and calmer and people can explain more about themselves. And there's also one called Red Hot Pie. It sounds like I'm doing a review for CanStar. But um, (laughs) I like Red Hot Pie just for eye candy. It's an Australian website and sometimes I have a a blowout. It's like, can there be any more beautiful men in the world? And the answer is yes. And I objectify them. why not clear about
0: that
1: (laughs) why not why
0: not tobes what makes you cranky
1: not much these days i've had some real epiphanies um i used to get a bit frustrated in traffic and now i just do not um i'm a pleasure on the road i let people in i get joy out of that um i used to get really angry at people who didn't park cars properly or you know just general kind of inconsiderate And selfish behaviour in all its manifold forms used to get me cranky or neighbours that couldn't do the recycling, even though it was really simple. And I would get sanctimonious. And now I'm like, that's their lot. I can't change that. And you lead by example and that's all you can do. So I don't think I'm not getting a root. That gets me cranky. (laughs) It would, wouldn't it? Or... I'm just a little highly um, anxious, if you know what I mean. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well, what makes you happy then? Getting a route.
1: (laughs) More than that. I'm not that shallow. Um, (laughs) I've got a friend here, and I'm very lucky to be living in a beautiful part. I was brought up on the far northern beaches of Sydney back in the 60s and 70s, part of the um, Gould League which people check out as an old bird-loving society. I had the badges. I love Skippy. There was rainforest, there was koalas. And I've come to a place kind of similar, but 40 years later, so less koalas and all that sort of hoo-ha. But nature is, to me, it answers any questions without saying anything. So just looking at the birds. I have river views. I'm very lucky. So I watch the Uh, estuary, ebb and flow. Um, I'm constantly amazed by nature. And I know it sounds um, saccharine, but nature makes me really happy. And the sun, because I need vitamin D, okay. If we have like a nine or 10 day session up here without any sun, everyone goes a bit bonkers, and I do too. So I need sun, but nothing really gets me cranky. And yeah, I think nature, being satisfied and not really wanting too much. You know what I mean? That's a um, a really settling feeling, um, which I know not everybody can experience because people are struggling with housing. But just feeling like I've got my own patch and no one can tell me what to do, that makes me feel real happy.
0: Well, I think you've been up in Ballina uh, for a couple of decades now, haven't you? It's, it's been bit... bloody years. Can you believe it? Two thousand and two, I think you moved away from Sydney. Yeah, had you had enough of Sydney been... and or, and big cities? Was uh, do you think it had used reached its
1: use by date? It had been happening for a long time, so I just watched that inexorable um, creak of you know neoliberal value capture. They call it the government so warehouses being sold off, gangsters bashing buildings down, fires. That was happening in the 80s when I was squatting, in the early 80s. And then I was living in a great old block in Elizabeth Bay and I watched the Siebel Townhouse go and I watched something else go. And I just watched all the things that made Sydney, inner city Sydney, intriguing were going and the yuppies were coming in. And I guess around 99, Vanessa sort of hit a sort of, um, what do you call it, like a, uh, what's the opposite of the nadir, a peak, you know. A zenith. In pub- Thank you. A zenith of publicity. And I can remember Paul Hogan saying once, "It's nothing worse than being famous and poor. And I felt like that because I wasn't earning much money. I didn't have an agent. I had hanger honours and I was living life, you know, with the HIV, 99, I'd had it for eight and a bit years. And so even then it was like post-96 treatment as prevention, but still getting dosing right. So it wasn't that nihilistic, but I lived life. And then it was like, oh, the money ran out and some guys at this pub ripped me off. I was sick of working with promoters and club people that didn't treat you with the same due diligence and respect that theatres do. because my work crosses over you know between all, all those venues. and so I was exhausted by that. No one came to sort of assist me and I was, I was physically and emotionally exhausted. so I just went I'm going up and I'd seen this area many years ago, not Ballin, it was actually Byron that was stealing the attention, thank God. Um, and I thought I'd just die on a yurt in the hills, but uh, that didn't happen.
0: Tell us about you. You mentioned her then, Vanessa, Vanessa Wagner, of course. Uh... Oh, yeah, I'm
1: making an assumption, but
0: no, no, no. But, but but no, I think people listening are coming into this episode knowing that you are you are the other half of um, of the glorious hostess with the mostess, mm. Vanessa Wagner. Mm. Tell us about the the evolution of Vanessa. When when did uh, when did you give birth to her, so to speak?
1: Well, when I was at dance school in Adelaide in eighty. 788 I think it was a friend Matthew Bergen was right into all sorts of um Michael Clark, who I loved um some other performers and sort of draggy cabaret stuff and Adelaide at that time and probably still had lots of grand old drag dames, and it was really fun to go to some really very boys in the band parties I must say um and we'd dress up on the weekends because op shopping was so fabulous back then, and we just play dress ups at home out of boredom. Um, come back to Sydney, start doing some dancing, and our dance all involved um, cis women, cis men dragging it, whatever, so there was always a bit of a gender fuck. And then I started throwing parties, which I've sort of thrown all my life, and it was at Burton Street in about 1992, and these parties were infamous, you had to have a ticket there was instructions about how you must and must look. And I'd watched some hysterical daytime movie called Mirror Mirror. And I found it, but it it's hysterical. I it had this character called Vanessa Wagner. Looks not, not nothing like the Vanessa character, but she was wearing a denim slack suit, and I fell in love with her on the name. And so I decided to dress up as this new nascent character at one of my parties. And people were just blown away and thought it was so funny and they said you could make money about out of this and i had a few other characters there was lorraine lugubrious and this other one and i had a great cleaning lady and i'd just go out on the streets and have a little sniff of heroin and put on the blue frock and wear an iron around my neck and to have a vacuum cleaner and i'd be vacuuming the streets by myself saying it's a filthy world but somebody's got to do it you know
0: <laughs>
1: so vanessa happened around then 92 and Bit by bit, it just happened that I met Greg Clark, and the Jamie and Vanessa parties kicked off, and that really was kind of the the beginning of it. And I, not something I had intended to do at all. So, so Gr- Gr-
0: Greg um, was was a fellow producer in in the parties, and and he created the character called Jamie. Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, he saw us dancing down at the. He invited our dance troupe. And that's where I met him. And that's where he was like, we could do something here. And so we pretended to be this famous couple that had been around forever and had decided to come out of the woodworks and we found great old venues. And that was another part of the, uh, what would you call it, the attrition. Every time we found a venue, maybe other promoters would come in and destroy the whole delicacy of of the arrangement and then it'd be bulldozed for Well, Cook and Phillip Park Pool, Victoria Park, um, a bowling club. We had the fabulous place where that poor Anna Wood died um, on Broadway, which had a sprung dance floor and a balcony. I'll remember the name. Amazing venues. I think that's what intrigued people that it was kind of the end for me of going to clubs where it was all dark and everyone was wearing black and it was all very, who's going to get on the dance floor first? And this was... The opposite. It was like come and let your hair down, have fun. Just and we hosted. So we personally made people feel comfy. It was pretty great. Um, and you were DJ at a lot of those parties too. I do the early bit. I've never done it enough to fully beat mix. Not that you have to. Um so at the Sydney Gay Youth Group, going way back to 1984, I think it was, I met Simon Hunt and I met uh, Ben Drayton and I met Anthony, Anthony Green, who's the ABC election reporter. And Simon and Ben and I, I took them back to my house, dad's place one day, cause he was in Indonesia and played some music and they were like, whoa! I was playing, you know, like Stevie Wonder and stuff. So Ben and I have really been very connected. And when I went to dance school, I kind of left him some records and he has continued to be my favourite DJ. but. Stephen Orkins, Robert Rassick, Blessy Soul is no longer with us, Annabelle Gaspar, um, Bill Morley, I think, played at them. So the music was very much what, what, what we like. Um, I think there's two ways to do an event, and that is you have DJs that play the best of hits and pander to the audience, or you have DJs that do what they want and promoters that do what they want and the punter either chooses to come or not. So, yeah, not everyone's cup of tea, but luckily enough people's cup of tea for them to expand and end up at the Sydney Dance Company with two and a half thousand people and drag Queens out of it on water taxis at four in the morning. It was just joyous.
0: <laughs> now, uh, Vanessa has quite a particular aesthetic. how How did you go about developing the look of Vanessa? I mean, uh, for a start, I, uh, that 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 wig, her headwear is There's been a few of them very unique.
1: I think growing up in the 1960s so I turned 58 not that long ago and so just everything around me I was like a sponge and I still am incredibly observant incredibly visual um so you can imagine some of the uh gather parties not many but I can remember going to this party in middle harbour when I was probably only about six or five so can you imagine some sort of sandstone place in middle harbour sydney in 1969 with women in stepford wife gowns and glass from floor to ceiling and you know like just the hot hu- it was the works i mean it makes mad men look like fucking thomas the tank train engine <laughs> so that was a bit of it and we also had these really groovy friends that had a shoe shop above they had a their apartment was above a shoe shop on the Corso manly before it was a mall and I thought that was so cool. And mum was really creative and so was uh, Marg and they would do weird things like get native Australian branches and spray them gold and do their version of Christmas. So are very kind of ahead of their time, modernist kooksters. And so I just absorbed it all. And Vanessa's, she's like a, is it paean? Is that the right word? P-A-E-A-N? Yeah to um, women of that era, but also a sort of a comment on what women were absolutely clear about and still are, and that is their roles, um, their place in society, they must look good, they must be a great hostess. And so I wanted to sort of play with that um, and see how that came up. So a lot of the early work was with Anthony Patterson, who I adore, and we do silly food displays and making pineapple princesses and really, you know, going digging deep into the 60s and 70s and let's face it there was n- never a more colorful era except maybe rome pre-republic rome <laughs> um, vanessa has quite a particular vocal delivery also she's a loudmouth. she's been screaming over drunk mainly homosexual men who refuse to talk stop talking while you're on the mic um and so i've developed this booming voice i come from a loud family and. Stella on Dad's side, my grandmother bless her beautiful stained little frock. she'd always have potatoes all over it. um she was deaf and so I think the word is stentorian is that yep. right?
0: Yes, yeah, I would go with that yeah yeah. Ah. <laughs> Vanessa also is not your your typical drag character. I mean she's part clown, part jester, but she's also part activist and and part politician as a character um you obviously take that as a as a big responsibility uh in the role of vanessa
1: no i think it's everyone's responsibility um and like i said earlier i mean i said that in a very sanctimonious tone. i did not mean that but i'm a real strong believer that if you see something you know you say something i'm not talking about our vile anti-terrorist behavior but um it's the bystander we're all bystanders on this planet And we've all got a responsibility, I think, to at least if we feel safe to speak up for uh, humans that maybe don't have the social infrastructure and capital, uh, whether that be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have just been, you know, it's just it's I still can't wrap my head around the horror of that. And then animals like the birds and the plants that I love that make me feel so happy. I also care about them um, and donate money to them. And, And so I don't know why I've gone off on that tangent, but helping other people, helping animals that aren't humans and maybe pushing the envelope a bit because the squeaky wheel gets the oil and I think I fell into it for a while and it was that, oh, look, oh, is it worth it? Someone else will do that and then I just went no I'm going to do it and if you've got the energy great if you don't you can still do things like clicktivism you can sign petitions and you can lead by example you know by trying to be a good citizen
0: yeah well working alongside Vanessa as I have she certainly calls it as it is Uh, a lot goes uncensored Uh, have you ever gotten into trouble
1: yeah I think one of the sessions that well i mean i went through a slightly cranky period but fuck. i mean fair enough that there's a there's a lot of shit going on out there and you know hence me turning the telly off for the last 15 months but you know it's all right to be angry but you don't want to hear it all the time but yeah i think it was we were hosting glam stand and um it was just more and more corporate floats and i think i made some funny remark about macquarie bank and got wrapped over the knuckles uh poor little macquarie bank the Millionaires' Club can't defend themselves. Oh <laughs> yes, I have occasionally got into trouble. Nothing major because usually it's the truth or an observation that's pretty fucking accurate. Pardon the swearing. So you're getting me all rolled up.
0: No, I love it when you're rolled up. That's that's, that's why I'm <laughs> doing it. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> Vanessa was crowned um, Sydney Mardi Gras Miss Fair Day in 1993. Is that? sort of when you know the zenith really started to be achieved and when when she was uh, appreciated and known as a character on the scene
1: i think it was a consolidation it was the first public outing it was down there at blackwater bay it was massive crowd and pastel was there and 3d and a few other people i think they were judging and mum helped me make this wicked you know i was calling myself the jag supermodel so i had this hysterical mini skirt made out of five by ones that we turned around and then we cut out around the button. So that was split at the arsehole. so And then the front was an extra pocket. And then this little, I looked amazing, big blue, like goggly, fucking 60 sunglasses, really bad wig and big caramel platform shoes. And I just let it rip. And I think people thought it was so funny and because I enjoy moving as well, but the, the dancing and all that means that I can sort of—I love physical comedy. So I think I might have struck a chord in a in an audience that may have been a little bit sequined out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and look, tell me
0: about Drag Race—the Drag Race meet at Bondi Beach because that is an event which you hosted for many years as part of the Sydney Fringe Festival.
1: It was amazing so victoria Harper and oh, i'll get in trouble now i've forgotten her name they started the fringe festival victoria used to go oh this is also not well anyway um greg clark was there and um victoria used to say that there was problems council were worried about the rev heads in their tyrannos on a saturday night doing drag racing in the car park there at bondi pavilion and it was becoming an issue. And so we, she thought and we agreed that we could provide an alternative drag race that didn't involve the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and that was a lot more fun. So it really was a, an hysterical response to real drag racing. Um, and I love the fact that it's at probably one of the most famous beaches in the world, summer, you have a captive audience. And then we just threw in our hysterical Jim events and it was just great. It was so much fun. And it's um yeah, a real shame it didn't continue, but it was really exhausting. Uh screeching around in high heels in sand in 33 degree heat. Um, but oh, you know, I wouldn't have not done it. Uh I wouldn't have missed it for my life. So that went for about six years um and it was sort of reincarnated a bit with Mardi Gras and didn't quite I think we had really bad weather, but um. Yeah, I've got plenty of footage and photographs. So I reckon I could quite easily put together a little retrospective. And Tyler Coppin made a short movie called Drag Race, uh, which is really cute. So now that I might have some more time to do some archiving, I might be able to post a copy to RuPaul to see what she thinks. I know it's not going to be classy enough for her because she's a snob, but worth a try.
0: Yes, I dare say that that your Drag Race uh, had appeared a long time before um, the one we see in reality TV. Nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I I suppose you're not a fan of the of the television series, are you?
1: I haven't watched any of it. I'm not interested. I think I've seen a tiny bit. It's not sort of um, this sort of active anti-viewing. I saw RuPaul at um, Wigstock in New York in nineteen ninety four when it was no longer in Tompkins Square Park, but it was down over on the West Side Highway, and that part hadn't been fully gentrified, and it was amazing. Um, and I've got footage of that too. But RuPaul, so 1994, RuPaul was, I, don't, I think she'd done Supermodel. So she was sort of standing out as someone who had got the publicity. And even back then, I can remember her getting on the mic. I think this is after Debbie Harry. And she said, um, I used to look down, I used to look up at those, what do they call them? Not apartments. Anyway. Uh, up there in Chelsea, and now I own one, and I'm looking down at you, and I've got a very weird vibe from that. It was, it was like I'm I'm successful, but I'm going to tell you how successful, and in fact, by being successful, I'm better than you. That's my interpretation of it. So, yeah, um, yeah interesting. I mean, good on her. I'm not into those formats. I'm not into that sort of drag, mostly. I can't make a costume. Doesn't really interest me. I'd much rather look at the Rainbow Lorikeets. They know how to fucking do it.
0: Yeah, Indeed.
1: Well, at <clears> home,
0: <throat> as far as uh, the mainstream, of course, we've Carlotta was a presence for has been a presence for many many years. But I dare say also that that you as Vanessa Wagner was probably the first drag performer to to really have that national presence through uh, the Big Brother household.
1: Yeah. Although my friend. Um, Billy O'Riordan, his character, Joylene Thornbird-Hairmouth, was the keyboard player of Jimmy and the Boys. And so she was in full drag playing the dangerous pub circuit on Mandrax and you name it in the late 70s, very early 80s. And is on sounds and is on countdown and being interviewed. And I also ran for New South Wales State Parliament with her own party, the Australian Cocktail Party. She was going up against Fred Nile and she got (laughs) about 3,000 votes. So I'm hoping that Billy and Joy Lane will get their views in the sort of history of, um, in this case, you know, men frocking up. Um, But, yeah, I guess, you know, Doris Fish, I loved. She was an inspiration, as was Pastel. But, yeah, the mainstream stuff with was like someone said, I'm not going to do Big Brother. Do you want to do it? And i was like well this is either going to be cactus or it's going to be great and it was both so because i came out as actually paused on the opening night unrehearsed didn't tell anyone um because it was a fundraiser allegedly for the starlight foundation that probably had a whole lot of sponsors back then When was that 91 2001 or something yep around then late 2002 90s. so that's that's 20 years ago so i just don't think many people with taste wanted a kooky drag queen who was hrv positive with a loud mouth but i got a bit of corporate work and it depressed me so yeah there was the aussie mail campaign the snickers ad there was enough things for a while there for me to finally get invited to the contra ball the very last one but i never wanted to be a part of all that i don't like all that celebrity hoo-ha but people still know about it and triple j used to do the ladies lounge with Helen Razor and Judith Lucy, and that was so much fun. And I would have loved to do more radio. Um, but considering it's Australia, it was then, I was weird. You know, I wouldn't censor my opinions. It's amazing that I survived as a performer exclusively for over 20 years. Yeah, Didn't yeah, have yeah. to get a day job.
0: That that um, Was that a spontaneous decision to to come out as
1: HIV positive on, on national television? No, I just thought to myself, when else am I going to get an opportunity to be on peak hour television? And back then it was still pretty popular. So there was like, you know, one to two million people watching it. I thought I need to use this opportunity to hopefully get some messages across. So that one was about HIV and demystifying it. The other bit was about trying to because I said, are you going to be in drag the whole time? And I went, does Barry Humphreys do that with Dame Edna? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, I said, no, but I will dress up for key things because it's for fundraising. And um, yeah, I just, I actually texted a T-shirt in the house saying, Howard must go, um, which I wore and I'm not sure if that ever appeared. And the HIV thing was just to reduce stigma, put a face to it. And then when I'm not in drag to be a man that maybe offers a different version than what the general public might think a gay man is. And I've had some really, really touching email stories, Facebooks from people saying, I just want to say thank you so much for being you because while that was on, I turned to my dad and told him about being gay or, you know, there's quite a few stories. And it proved to me that it's the stories that aren't told or the lack of media representation of our diverse communities basically creates a vacuum for stigma and misunderstanding and stuff. So. Yeah, I used that chance to just get as many messages across as I possibly could.
0: And as you say, affecting all sorts of people in various households around the country.
1: Yeah, it was powerful, and of course, I've never been on national television or P. K. ever again. But hey, <laughs> did you I know was. who was?
0: Did you know who was going into the celebrity house? Because there were some daunting personalities that uh, I, I wouldn't mind. I would hate to spend five minutes with, let alone. When five are we weeks. talking? Is
1: there a new one now? Is there? Don't forget, I'm yeah. off grid now, just about.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about your housemates, you know, uh, Carl Sandelands, oh, yeah. and Warwick Capper and Anthony Mundine.
1: Never got to see Warwick. He came in after me. Mundine was all right. He was just doing that sort of, because um, he, as soon as we went in, you know, Sarah Marie raced to a place she wanted. And the other women, I didn't know who they were. And um, kind of uh, just sort of... um. Age, humans. And then there was lovely Adriana, who was such a sweetheart, and she was unwell. But Kyle was the biggest bully, and he is a bully. And I'm happy for him to hear this because it's true. And um I don't care if he tries to sue me because I've got no money. But he left the tap on running really full on, and then would leave the kitchen and go and do something. And there was a drought happening at that time in South Britain, in Queensland where it was shot. But that's not the point. I just said, hey, but it's probably good to turn those off when you're not using them. And then Mundine would do laps around the thing for exercise and he would leave, a ho- um, people would leave a hose out. So I would try to bring it in to keep it out of the way so people didn't trip. And all of a sudden he contrived that into Vanessa's a water Nazi while he was still able to do his shit house, ugly talkback radio. So I found him so repugnant and I still do he's a really nasty human being and I'm sorry but it was horrible it was a horrible experience but the rest were lovely Dylan was nice um no problems that's uh, it- like probably get rid of someone That's sorry about to bitch about him but he was really cruel to me
0: yeah yeah well well and look it's, it's still having an effect 20 years later
1: that's right I'm spitting tacks they're all over the roof if only the listeners could see
0: Now, um, as a kid, career aspirations, did you always want to be a performer?
1: Mm. I sort of wanted to be the centre of attention, but not in that sort of Taffy Davenport smashing the Christmas tree over, not getting Cha-Cha heels away. I loved the bush. I loved nature. Um, I did the odd bit of dress-up like lots of kids did. Um, I sort of knew that, our family was quite you know performative um and quite fun and good sense of humor and musical and and so i just felt free to be whatever and i found school just breathtakingly both horrifying and tedious um and didn't know what i wanted to do but uh one of the seminal points was my grandmother on mum's side took me to and these other cousins to disneyland in 1979 and in the west coast of america and i can remember being at universal studios going on the train ride with the big bad mechanical jaws coming out but also there was this big sort of outdoor auditorium you know like where they are cruel to dolphins and things and they had this big sh- sort of set shell of like 747 because i think airport 70 whatever it was was out. And they were picking people from the audience to come in. And I was so excited, I thought, I've got to get this. This is my, this is my in, you know, to Hollywood. <laughs> and my cousin got picked, and I was devastated. Um, so I realised I took that quite seriously. But prior to that, in Western Australia, where our family moved. There was this initiative, maybe by the government, and they trialled this um, youth theatre project when only 15 kids in the state could get it and so I auditioned for that and I got in and it was at what is now WAPA. Um, but after a few days, a few weeks, I was like, I can't sing and that Queen is singing really yucky show tunes and I don't know if I'm at out for this, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to act or if I could. So that's right. I decided to go to Disneyland instead of doing the, completing this course. So. Then fast forward to about 84, I'm in a warehouse in Newtown, Beta House, there's a party downstairs, thousands of people. Uh, uh, Music stops. I needed to race upstairs and find a cassette. I repeat, a cassette of Michael Jackson and kept the party going. And these two chicks come up to me and said, you're a really good dancer. Have you ever thought of studying it? And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could. I thought it was only ballet. And so I started going to, um I wanted to you know they really encouraged me to go to Sydney Dance Company public classes um Paul Saliba I think it was called Afro-Jazz which was just amazing and incredible and then when I got my confidence up a little bit I went to the modern Martha Graham classes which were a lot harder and you know starting quite late knowing nothing about it and Paul was divine because he took no prisoners so if someone uh, if a woman walked in sort of concerned about her sort of leg warmers and came in a bit late or did or wasn't sort of focused, he'd just point them out and say, get out. <laughs> it's like, it's, you're here to do it and love it and try your hardest and make mistakes or you can fuck off. And so he'd also do this thing where you get everyone in a circle and there'd be up to a hundred people in these classes in this beautiful old warehouse in Woolloomooloo. And he'd then have this funky music on and then he'd just point to someone. And he'd point to you and you'd have to go into the middle and improvise, and it was terrifying. But he gave me confidence. And he also pulled me out in front of the class once and said, this young man here has had no dance experience, has worked so hard and has shown such joy and commitment. And I felt really chuffed and embarrassed that he said that. But um, that's sort of where the dancing stuff happened. And then tried to get into schools, but there was very few places around. Got into the Centre for Performing Arts in Adelaide after my my second attempt. Met some really cool people there, and then we came back to Sydney and started doing all the uh, pre Vanessa seventy eight Tourette and dance camp performing. So the dance came before the drag, but they intermingle. Yeah, were you at a Hollywood High School? Yes, I was.
0: So you did Hollywood get to Hollywood. High School.
1: You got to Hollywood. I did. I. There was a cemetery across the road where everyone would punch cones and take acid. I didn't, um, I was anti-drug until I was 16. And then I caught up. Yes, it's now Zushi uh, Apartments there in Perth, but it was pretty cool school in that it was co-ed, no uniform required, um, integrated with some, you know, people who were physically um, had different abilities. So we had a woman who became a famous artist in Perth who had no arms and no legs. We had people with quite chronic um, musculoskeletal deformities, skeletal deformities. So from an early age, I was um, in an environment where able-bodied people weren't everyone. And I think that was really good because you know what school's like. If they clipped you down the ramp with their wheelchair, you tell them to fuck off, just like anyone else, you know? And that was unpleasant having your heels clipped by a wheelchair, but it's all part of... The rough and tumble of school and it was great um yeah Hollywood high school go for it I don't think I've ever been to a reunion probably never will
0: <laughs> now we've seen huge changes to the gay scene um over the last uh two three three decades in in Sydney I'm talking about Sydney because that's yep. that's uh the world we know uh the world we knew um big changes um what do you think a young a young gay person today really needs to know about what has gone before?
1: Yeah, look, I think intergenerational learning can happen all the time. We've got lots to learn from younger people as we have from older people. And as we know, with a lot of Aboriginal culture, there's an oral history there. But I think knowing a little bit about history is obviously really important. And these stories about um, the trials and tribulations, the horrors, the murders, the violence, the state sanctioned, uh, you know, phobia, and um, the non-separation of church and state causing a homophobic maelstrom, you know, all of that stuff kind of came to a head with that vile Malcolm Turnbull trying to keep his job uh waste of 122 million dollars postal vote but even i missed out on a large number of very creative and instrumental people who died of hiv and so i feel like we lost a generation partially of leaders of mentors of artists yes there was also people who just worked in the local bank in Cogra, and that's great but we also had this very vibrant cultural thing happening that just happened to get semi-gunned down by HIV and interestingly um I have a t-shirt that is lots of it's a World AIDS Day t-shirt i got in Durban um, and it has Nelson Mandela's prison number on it and I've been adding all my little medals and HIV ribbons and things like that and I call it my diggers shirt my gay diggers shirt because Um, You know, I pay pay my respects to our diggers because so many of them just thought, just did what they were told, you know, and it was brutal and vile. And so we went through a war as well that was mostly kept under the carpet because it was not seen as important and it was dirty and the laws, I mean, when I used to do training for an organisation, it was really great to go through the decades of discrimination with the participants and ask some questions, you know, when did electroconvulsive therapy stop? When was it legal to be, um, you know, homosexual, if you like, in which states? And throughout the day, people are absolutely devastated and shocked that it all happened so recently um, and that that's all trauma. Um, So we don't want to talk to young people and say, it was horrible and you have no idea. We hope that they've got curiosity and we hope that our museums and galleries don't just compartmentalise our story in the gay corner, that we're part of Australia's cultural fabric, uh, as we always have been. And that's what I'd say to younger people. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I'm happy to answer questions from my perspective. There's people that have been through different experiences to me, but I guess it's fun to say to them, you'll probably never know what it's like to pop a real ecstasy in a room full of 10,000 people dancing to the shit hottest music with not a security guard <laughs> around and people having sex in corners and dancing nude. <laughs> like that's not gonna happen again. No, no, And I feel sorry for people that aren't gonna experience that because shit, we saw some stuff, didn't we? yeah, yep. 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 Um, you've joined the ranks uh,
0: uh, as one of our elders now. So um, yeah, hopefully those- Legends, uh, I
1: hate that term. We used to joke, me and my mate, if you called a legend, it's like, oh, oh, she's a bit long on the tooth now.
0: (laughs) Is the word retirement in um,
1: Vanessa's vocabulary? I don't like that because it's retiring from life. No, because I squandered money. I sort of made up for it later on in life by getting a full-time job for 12 years and still performing and... um, (laughs) I still had so much to do. That 12 years was about getting safety in my own home. And I think if you haven't got a, I think it is a human right to have your own home really and to be safe and know you're not gonna get kicked out. And that takes away all this anxiety and then you can start to think about things that you really wanna do. And maybe that's nothing, or maybe that's what you've always been doing, but no way, I haven't even hit my straps yet. You wait, there's more to come. Great. And we're not talking, you know, like a TV show or anything. I'm just going to keep, I want to write. I feel like I've, um, I have, have had a big 18 months. I have many people, um, and more with COVID and floods, but I've also had a, a big period in my personal life where like three really major things happen, and it's made me really re-question, uh, priorities and things. Um, Similar to being diagnosed in ninety one with HIV, I had to really think through what that all meant and uh, my um, mortality and fears. And I have to say, apart from this filthy cold, I couldn't be happier about myself. I couldn't get couldn't give a fuck about what other people think of me. I'm just so centered and solid and happy. And I'm yeah, I I'm not going to retire. I will be bloody banging on about something as they try to sort of pull out the feeding tube that's in my advanced healthcare directive.
0: <laughs> well, please do write because you've got heaps of stories to tell. Oh. Um, I, I knew this conversation was going to be inspirational and uh, a treat for, for myself and and for the listeners. So thank you, Tobes. I, I know uh, um, it hasn't been comfortable because you are full of the lurgy, uh, the, the flu at the moment. So, um, uh, I able
1: to get him. I feel grateful.
0: A speedy recovery to you. and um, And thanks for the chat.
1: No, I miss working with you, I really do. It was lovely. Well, maybe we can, of course.
0: We can, yes, and maybe maybe a Vanessa and Ernest party or... um,
1: Well, there's going to be a lot happening for World Pride um, and Mardi Gras and some stuff's locked in. I'm not sure if I can talk about it yet, but there's a few little bits and bobs. And interestingly, um, one is about uh, some history, some queer or LGBT history that I'm popping some items in. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks, Tobes. Take care, darling. Bye-bye.
0: Vanessa Wagner is always a vibrant and vital presence, spreading great joy and reminding us to not take ourselves too seriously. She is the creation of my guest today, Tobin Saunders. Always nice to chat with you, Tobes. There is always someone of great interest to be heard on the Stages podcast and a variety of roles are explored and celebrated. Look back through the archives and you'll get access to directors, designers, and drag performers, producers, publicists, and playwrights, agents and actors, choreographers, and casting. Emerging talents and established legends, all available to access on Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft, career, and creativity. I'm Peter Ryers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time, you can be sure on that, on Stages.